Have you ever wondered what the difference is between a PT and an OT? How about a nutritionist and a dietitian, or a physician assistant and a nurse practitioner? If so, you are not alone. Even those who work in healthcare may be unclear about some of the roles and responsibilities of various other industry professionals. It's why we created this podcast to discuss the similarities and the differences between certain healthcare professions as well as the misconceptions. Plus, how those professionals work together to care for patients. I'm Catherine Mazone, and you are listening to Healthcare Who Doesn't. On this episode of Healthcare Who Doesn't, we'll sit down with a nurse practitioner and a physician assistant to find out what distinguishes one from the other. We'll discuss their training, their clinical duties, how they work together, and misconceptions, of course. While there are distinct differences between the two professions, you may be surprised to learn just how alike they are. Joining us to help us break it down are two people who know these jobs inside and out, both from UAB. Lindsay Colossa is a physician assistant. She's certified. She graduated from UAB's PA program in 2015 with a master's in physician assistant studies. She's been practicing for five and a half years at UAB in family and community medicine, but briefly took a stint in radiation oncology. Lindsay, thank you so much for being here. Glad to be here. Thank you. Also, we have Lauren Mays, our nurse practitioner. She graduated from UAB's MSN program as a family nurse practitioner in 2010 with a doctorate in nursing practice, practicing as a family nurse practitioner for 13 years, an educator, but never stopped practicing. Thank you so much for being here, Lauren. Thank you for having me. For now, I am most interested in some of the similarities between you two. Both of you pretty much do the same job, but your training and your certifications, your education is different. Lindsay, what does a PA do and why are you called physician assistant? It was founded kind of in the mid-1960s. It was born out of the need to improve and expand access to healthcare amid a kind of a primary care shortage around that same time. The PA profession was developed to, to train medical providers, people who are capable of filling that gap um, and, and being able to expand healthcare to the people who, who needed it. The profession has grown dramatically since the 1960s, gained acceptance, kind of established uh, national accreditation standards and board certification, things like that. Um, took up until about the year 2000 for all 50 states to, to recognize and grant authority to PAs to practice medicine. Since then, we've been kind of continuing to evolve the, the, the profession um, as there is more data on the, the quality of, of physician assistant. There's a lot of changes to the regulations that were put in place back in the 1960s. So that's always, it's continuing to evolve. Currently, I think we have about 159,000 practicing PAs here in the U.S., about 300 PA programs across the country. It's a great profession. It's constantly um, ranked as one of the best and, and the fastest growing healthcare professions that, that we have in our country. 
U.S. News and World Report ranks a nurse practitioner as the number one best healthcare job and a PA as number two. I don't know how you feel about that, Lindsay. Both collectively known as advanced practice providers, right? I want to get to you, Lauren. Thank you. Um, So, sure, nurse practitioners have been around also since the 1960s. Similar to PA, so you're going to find lots of similarities here. Our role was created to address the physician shortage and access to care gaps. For more than 60 years, nurse practitioners have been providing safe and effective care, and there are more than 355,000 nurse practitioners licensed in the United States today. 70% of that number are certified as family nurse practitioners. We are recognized as healthcare providers by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid and are also able to gain hospital privileges, long-term care privileges, and we hold prescriptive privileges. As an APRM, I can perform physical exams, I can order diagnostic tests, I can prescribe medications, I develop treatment plans, and I treat acute or chronic illnesses, injuries, or conditions that fall under primary care. One thing I particularly love about being a family nurse practitioner is that I can function as a generalist working in primary care or I can pivot and get additional expertise in a specialty population, such as dermatology, orthopedics, et cetera, and care for various patient populations. And I know that a physician assistant also takes medical histories and does the lab tests, diagnostic tests, the physical exams, the diagnosing, treating illness, but they also assist in surgery. And you talked about how in family practice, Lauren, you're able to pivot, but I understand that it takes a lot more for you to pivot in your specialties. Let's go with Lindsay first. So a lot of that comes down to the educational programs, the the education that PAs get versus the the nurse practitioners. The PA schools in general are kind of uh, you hear the term medical model, so they're they're modeled after the type of schooling that a physician uh, would would receive. What that just basically means is we're trained as generalists. We receive didactic training across uh, things like anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, just very general uh, basic sciences and medical education. We do that for about four semesters. Then we do about 12 months or about 2,000 hours of clinical rotations um, for for our, our clinical training. We uh, generally uh, have a broad range of clinical experience, so things, all, everything from internal medicine, inpatient, pediatric, psychiatry, um, OBGYN, and surgery. You mentioned the surgical training, so um, we, we do receive some surgical training both in the classroom and through our clinical rotations while we're in school. When you graduate from PA school, a lot of people go into the, the medical side and a lot of people go into surgery. The UAB PA program used to be uh, a surgical focus program. There are a lot of surgery PAs, uh, especially especially around where we are, um, that we're, we're trained to both. Um, and, and basically what we do is we end up receiving specialized training once we start those jobs. So without additional uh, formal training, it's more on-the-job training that we receive. It's not that easy for you, Lauren. It's 
Similar, so as a family nurse practitioner, similar to PA education, we are trained as generalists as well, but that does not include surgical training. If I myself, as a family nurse practitioner, wanted to work in the OR, I would need to go back and get my RN first assist. It's commonly called RNFA in order to be able to assist surgeries um, in the OR. There are different types of nurse practitioners that you can become. So I'm speaking solely from the family nurse practitioner hat. But one thing that is different, as Lindsay alluded to, they are trained as a generalist. So I would compare their training similar to my FMP training. Had I selected to be a women's health nurse practitioner or a pediatric nurse practitioner, nurse practitioner school has different roles that we can take and we are specially trained in that particular role. If I would have selected pediatric nurse practitioner, I would be restricted to caring for only the pediatric population. Whereas a family nurse practitioner, I am trained as the generalist and can treat conditions across the lifespan. So it would be more difficult for me to pivot and change roles if I were specifically trained in one of those specialties as a nurse practitioner originally. So it sounds like there are a lot of different specialties that, Lauren, you can acquire through certification processes. How about your first becoming a nurse practitioner? What sort of education do you have to get that differs from what Lindsay might have? To become a nurse practitioner at a minimum, Um, You must have an active registered nurse license, so that's one of the things that does set us apart. We have to hold a Master's of Science in Nursing degree. The Master's of Science in Nursing can typically be achieved in about two years following the bachelor's degree in nursing. The Doctor of Nursing Practice degree has become a popular choice, which takes approximately three years to complete, so completing uh, your total NP education in about seven years, dependent on program of study, of course. While both an MSN and DMP have the same fundamental practitioner skills, what sets them apart is the DMP prepared APRN is equipped with more of like a systems thinking mindset. The practitioner can incorporate quality improvement strategies and translate that evidence into practice to promote population health. You have to complete an accredited program with a minimum of 500 direct patient care clinical hours. However, that has recently been increased, and now it is 750 moving forward. And then you sit for board certification. Once you pass, you are then board certified as a nurse practitioner, but then you have to also obtain your nurse practitioner license, which is um, through your state board of nursing. Lindsay, I know that speaking in generalities, the certification process can be different from state to state. So what's kind of universal for you? The education and the national board certification, that's national. So a PA, a PA program is a master's level program. In order to to apply to a PA program, you generally have to have a bachelor's degree with prerequisite science courses. Think like pre-med type of science classes. There is often, depending on the school, a requirement for some sort of healthcare experience. That can be anything from shadowing to working for 20 years as an EMT. I mean, anything in between. Uh, We had, in in my class personally, we had people who were straight out of school who had just done a lot of shadowing, and we had people who had worked for 
a career basically in healthcare and we're going back to get a PA degree. The program of study is typically about 27 months. You do four semesters of didactic or classroom work uh, and then you do 12 months or about 2,000 hours of clinical rotations. So they're pretty standard. Um, once you graduate, you graduate with a master's in physician assistant studies. And at that point, you are eligible to take your boards and become board certified. There is one certifying body uh, nationally for PAs. That's the NCCPA. So you take a, um, a, take a test, uh, your boards. It's about a four hour, four or five hour test. Um, and if you pass that, you are board certified. And then at that point, like Lauren mentioned, you're able to then get your state license. At the state level, that's where it kind of starts to get varied a little bit. Every 10 years, we are required to recertify. Typically what that has meant is a recertifying exam that you would take just similar to your original board exam. They have recently, like just this year, started a new option where instead of taking one certifying exam in your ninth or tenth year, you will you have the option to do what they call a Panry LA, which is um, the recertifying exam longitudinal assessment. So you take a series of 25 questions per quarter for eight to 12 quarters. Um, it spreads it out a little bit, makes it a little bit more approachable. You do recertify and have to take that exam as a generalist. So even PAs who are working in a specialty, so if you've worked in orthopedics for 20 years, you're still required to recertify as a generalist. You're also required to have 100 CME hours, so 100 continuing medical education hours every two years to, to be eligible to recertify. I understand that for nurse practitioners, your recertification is, is slightly different. So for recertification for nurse practitioners, that occurs every five years, and it's highly dependent on which board you certify through. There are two boards that FMPs can certify through. That's the AAMP and the ANCC. Um, for recertification in that fifth year, you do have to have a number of CEUs. So for AAMP, for example, you have to have 100 CEUs and 25 of those be in pharmacology, plus 1,000 practice hours, plus you must maintain that active RN licensure. Or you can recertify by exam. And what's a CEU? CEU is that continuing education credit or unit is what the U stands for. Um, but those are continuing education courses where we can stay up to date on evidence-based practice. And a lot of those we share, like the CMEs yes. that are valid for us is the same as the CEUs for nurse practitioners. So we can go to lectures or conferences. There are some conferences that are PA-specific or NP-specific, um, but a lot of the continuing medical education uh, that we, we share, PA, NP, MD, DO, um, so there's a lot of overlap. And for ANCC, what makes it different and the reason a lot of practitioners choose that board is you don't have to have the practice hours. So a lot of times, especially for nurse practitioner faculty, they don't get to meet that minimum practice hour. So it makes it difficult to recertify. There's other options um, that you can use in your professional practice as a nurse practitioner to recertify. For example, academic credits or precepting nurse practitioner students or presenting at conferences, anything to show that you are professionally engaged in the profession. With that kind of shared curriculum, it sounds a lot like an interprofessional learning environment. Would you say that you two work together on a lot? Absolutely. Yeah, I would say it depends on where you're practicing. But in Lindsay's practice, I won't speak for yeah. you, but um, she works side by side with nurse practitioners and really they're functioning in the same role. In my department specifically, um, in family medicine, there are two nurse practitioners and two physician assistants. And 
we have the exact same role. We see we see patients independently um, on our own schedule every every day. We are responsible for evaluating, ordering diagnostic tests, interpreting those tests, treating and prescribing medications, and we we collaborate with any number of, of other healthcare professionals, including the physicians that we that we work with, as well as the dietitians and the behavioral health therapists, the uh, social workers, the CMAs, the LPNs, the RNs. I mean, there's you know. Together, the nurse practitioners and the PAs work uh, with all of the members of the healthcare team. And certainly collaboration, I would imagine, working alongside someone, especially in your practice, Lindsay, it, it would be kind of difficult not to seek out one of those colleagues if you had something to discuss. Yeah, especially being in primary care, a lot of the consults that we do will be to specialists. And so we reach out to the specialists for our patient on our patient's behalf if they need something beyond what we can provide in primary care. And a lot of that is reaching out to the nurse practitioners or the physician assistants that work in those specialties. There's a lot of ability to send a message or have a, um, a consult with those, with those providers to be able to provide those services for our patients. So there's no sort of rivalry between nurse practitioners and physician assistants. No, not at all. We work together. <laughs> there's a there's a large need for healthcare providers, um, especially in primary care, that we welcome all and we work really well together as as a part of that team. In fact, we're grouped under the same umbrella. I'm speaking from UAB terms. We all fall under the Office of Advanced Practice Providers, so we all get the same information. We all have the same rules that we practice by. So absolutely, it's more of a collaborative effort. You're both working with patients in a similar capacity and helping each other to help the patient. I'm curious about misconceptions. I just learned today that there is no such thing as a physician's assistant. It's a physician assistant. <laughs> That's perfectly fine. So it's pretty common, um, just the naming of our profession. So a lot of times people will refer to our profession as a physician's assistant. It actually is a physician assistant. We are not necessarily the physician's assistant. And I, I see that a lot when, when I have patients in clinic and they'll say, oh, well, you're, you're, the, you're so-and-so, doctor so-and-so's assistant. And, and so it kind of comes off a little bit. Um, it doesn't explain the full scope of our practice. Two years ago, 2021, the AAPA, or the um, American Academy of Physician Assistants, actually voted to change the name of our, of our profession. So we are now um, considered physician associates uh, at the national level. So that is trickling down to the different bo- state boards. It's not something that we use in practice currently yeah, or yet, um, but that is, that is on the horizon is a name change for our profession just to kind of better, better have it represent what we do uh, and what our, what our scope of practice is. So you do not require a physician's supervision to operate in a clinic or to prescribe medication or to offer treatment plans. We are licensed independently. So we, we have our own you know, board certification and our own state medical license. Um, we are licensed through the Board of Medical Examiners throughout the country. The regulations uh, at, at the practice level basically range from, from optimal to advanced to moderate to reduced. And that just depends on, on the state. In some states, there is not a requirement to have your PA license tied to a collaborating physician. Alabama is not one of those. In Alabama, we do have that requirement. We are required to have a collaborating or registration agreement with a physician um, with, with whom we practice. What does that mean? Does that mean you just have to be in practice with the physician? So it's a physician who is, is some, not somebody that has to be in 
the clinic physically. They are, they are someone who is available for consultation if needed. There is a requirement of a certain number of charts that we review on a quarterly basis just to kind of make sure that we are maintaining kind of an ongoing relationship. We are not required to have a physician sign off on charts or be present in the exam room when we're talking to patients. We are independent in that. Nurse practitioners, can they practice by themselves? Great question. There's not a black and white answer to that. Um, One of the biggest misconceptions as it relates to scope of practice for nurse practitioners is that all nurse practitioners can perform the same functions, and that is just simply not true. This varies highly depending on what state the nurse practitioner is practicing in, and then to complicate things even further, our role also um, varies by what hospital or clinic we are employed by. Depending on the state, some nurse practitioners can practice independently, and this is referred to as full practice, meaning they practice without the oversight or supervision of a physician, and they report to their state board of nursing. Um, Currently in the United States, there are actually 27 states um, that have full practice authority, which is amazing. Two other categories to define a nurse practitioner's practice. A practitioner working under reduced practice laws must have a collaborative agreement with a physician, and we are monitored by both the State Board of Nursing and the State Board of Medical Examiners. So very similar to what Lindsay just described, is we don't have to be directly supervised by the physician, but we do have to have that collaborative agreement in which they are kind of, you know, checking in, monitoring our charts. There's quality indicators that we, you know, agree to and make sure that we're following those. The most restrictive level of practice is called restricted practice, and those nurse practitioners have more of the supervisory role um, and also more of a prescriptive role, like you do what your physician allows you to do in that clinic. Um, And unfortunately, there are still 11 states that are practicing under that model. Why do you say unfortunately? When you restrict a nurse practitioner's practice, it only impacts the patient and the patient care and the care that we're provided we're providing to the patient when we can't practice to our full scope of our education and what our national um, guidelines say that we can do as nurse practitioners, it's only going to cause the patient to have those access to care problems. If I were a patient and I was looking for a provider, both of you work in family and community medicine. Why would I choose one versus the other, or would I? Honestly, I think it would be whoever was available to see you first. I would trust both professionals as my primary care provider. We're trained in very similar ways. Uh, There are a few things that set us apart. For example, the nursing background, I joke all the time that we're always nurses at heart. But as far as the care that we provide, I would trust myself or a family member to be cared for by either profession. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. It's it's going to be access. It's going to be who who you can get into, um, or who's who's convenient for you. Lauren, you mentioned nurses at heart. What do you think? What kind of advantage do you think being a nurse at heart gives you? You know, nurses are are just the center stone of healthcare in general. No matter what profession you are, you almost always interact with a nurse at some point in care of a patient. Um, so I say nurses at heart just because. We have been engaged at, in that patient care at the bedside prior to becoming a nurse practitioner. So I think that we have a little different foundational mindset when it comes to providing that 
care to the patient just holistically. Lindsay mentioned earlier they train more of the medical model, which my understanding, and Lindsay, correct me if I'm wrong, is more diagnoses driven. Like, how is the diagnosis going to present? You know, how do I treat it? When do I follow up with it? And nurse practitioners do the same. We have to know that same information to care properly for the patient. But one thing that I think is a little different is our approach is more how does the patient experience that illness? So we are focused more on that holistic um, lens, for lack of a better word, whereas that's a little bit different than the medical model of training. Was the idea, the concept of working with other healthcare professionals to, to better serve patients, has that always been on the forefront of your mind, or do you think that that's kind of evolved? And, and this is for both of you. Nobody in healthcare can do their job independently. I mean, it's just, there's no way that you can have anybody operating and doing a good job for their patients. So, I mean, I think being part of a team is, is essential in healthcare. I think going into the role of APP and deciding that that's the track that you want to take with your career, you know you're signing up for a very specific role within that team. So you kind of are bridging the gap between the physicians and some of the other support staff. It's not always been part of the healthcare model. It's something that's relatively recent since, you know, the 60s and 70s. Um, so I think it's a unique role within that interdisciplinary healthcare team that you get to play as an APP. I would second all of that. I don't remember when I went through my NP education of it being such a priority and a focus to ensure that we cover that in curriculum. I'm really speaking from my education hat now, um, is that we really emphasize the importance of working interprofessionally with amongst all the roles. Um, We emphasize social determinants of health in the MP education where I teach. And you can't address someone's social determinants of health without working interprofessionally. For example, what does that mean? That means you have high blood pressure, I need to prescribe you this medicine, but you can't afford it. So who am I gonna reach out to to figure out what drug would be a better option? That may be pharmacy. Well, now you tell me, sure, I can afford that medicine, but I have no way to get to the pharmacist. Then who am I going to contact to provide transportation? That may be a social worker. So there's various ways that we are intentional about incorporating interprofessional work in NP education. I don't recall it being as emphasized when I went through NP school, but that was also, what, 15 years ago, maybe? (laughs) I can't do math on the spot. But now I think we are being more intentional to show the true value of working interprofessionally and on interprofessional teams when it comes to providing that patient-centered care. In other words, you think one of the ways to achieve optimal patient care is to to work together interprofessionally. You do have a lot in common as far as what you you do day to day. Your training and your background might differ, but it sounds like you all have the same end goal and you share very similar functions. I wanted to bring up one more thing. Lauren, you're also working at a residential facility for victims of sex trafficking. Is that normal for a nurse practitioner? It's not normal to have a sole clinic devoted to that patient population. We are fortunate in the state of Alabama. It's actually one of the largest residential facilities. It's a safe haven for people who are rescued um, from sex trafficking. I am their primary care provider. I'm very fortunate to be able to care for that patient population. 
and Lindsay, would you be able to serve the same role? It depends on the structure of the clinic. In the state of Alabama, there would have to be an MD or a DO that would be a, either a part of that clinic or be able to have a collaborating um, license, but I'm assuming that, that you do as well. Yes. So yes, functionally, I would be able to serve that same role. And I imagine your role is probably heavily dependent on interdisciplinary relationships Absolutely. in that clinic, even more, than, um, even more than a normal primary care yes. clinic would be. Y'all have been awesome. Thank you both so much, Lauren and Lindsay, for taking the time to speak with us today and to shed some more light on these two healthcare professions. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the 2022 Interprofessional Leadership Fellows with the Center for Interprofessional Education and Simulation at the University of Alabama at Birmingham in association with the Department of Family and Community Medicine at UAB's Marnix E. Hearsing School of Medicine. Music and effects provided by YouTube Studios Audio Library and Pixabay.com. Until next time, this is Catherine Mazone with Healthcare Who Does It. Thanks for listening. Thank you.